0: One hundred men will test today. But only three win the Green Beret. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanton. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, DC. Today I'm speaking with David Bramlett, a retired US staff sergeant, formerly with the US Rangers and then the Green Berets, with three combat tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. More relevantly to us, David has spent the last 10 months fighting with a team he had created within the Ukrainian Foreign Legion in Kharkiv, Donetsk, and luhansk Oblast. He's currently back from Ukraine and is a student at the Alpervich Institute for Cybersecurity Studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies here in Washington, D.C., graduating in May and looking for a cybersecurity job. So for any companies out there looking for a great and experienced cybersecurity professional, please contact David. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's begin with you've you've had a career, successful career in the U.S. military. What made you decide in March of last year to go to Ukraine of all places and to
1: join the war? Yeah, so uh, I get asked this question a lot. Obviously, um, I was in my last semester at Johns Hopkins Ice. Um February 24th kicked off the invasion happened, and of course, it doesn't matter what class I was sitting in. You know, we were talking about Ukraine. And so I was stationed with 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group in Germany, and I got there uh, two months before Crimea was illegally annexed in uh, in 2014. So our whole mission set shifted to countering Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. Um, I got out uh, because I didn't think that there would be the political appetite to send the Green Berets in if this did kick off. So when I was sitting in class and this kicked off, all right, well, I trained for this, you know, I have the knowledge and the skills and abilities to go do something about this. Would I rather sit in class and talk about Ukraine or go over and actually do something to help? And so, uh,
0: but you don't have any connection to Ukraine, right? You,
1: you're not, you haven't lived there. No, no, no. So, um, well, I mean, it's sort of fun, uh, sort of funny. I did a DNA test, uh, like maybe a, few weeks beforehand and you know my heritage comes from poland ukraine that area so yeah that's just a funny yeah, anecdote, but anecdote but no and, reason to yeah no yeah no, no no
0: and you just felt that the war was unjust and you wanted to help the people that you had helped to train
1: yeah of course i mean in my mind this is the most black and white righteous good versus evil fight that i'm probably going to see in my lifetime and having served in Afghanistan twice, in Iraq once, um, you know, I wanted to go fight for a cause that I knew was a hundred percent right and black and white. And you know that—that's what I experienced there. I mean, the I would I would call Ukra- the Ukrainian theater uh, a pretty permissive environment. So even in Kharkiv. When there was still in kharkiv city was still an artillery range i mean we would go out and do a call for fire mission in the morning and then we'd be having gin and tonics in the afternoon it pretty, and it's pretty it's pretty wild experience you know being able to do that and uh having ukrainians come up to you and give you hugs and kisses and like thank crying thanking them or thanking us for being there you know so it's pretty special So I
0: I just have to ask this because I know that the Russians are putting out propaganda that this is really a fight with NATO, not with Ukraine. Just for the record, no one from the U.S. military, from the U.S. government ordered you to do this. You're you're no longer on active duty, and you did this on your
1: own volition. Uh, That is 100% correct. Um, And then, you know, just to drive this point home, the guys that I served with at 110, I literally high-fived those guys in Poland when I was going into Ukraine and they were leaving Ukraine. and uh, The U.S. military. Yeah, U.S. military. Uh, so they, they pretty rapidly left the country, and uh, I pretty rapidly went into the country. So there's definitely <laughs> no NATO troops or special forces guys in country. I can 100% tell you that right now. So what can you tell us
0: about the Ukrainian Foreign Legion? And for those that are listening, obviously we are... Not going to reveal anything that's going to jeopardize security of Ukrainian forces here. That's not the intent of this podcast. So we're going to be careful about the topics we
1: tread on. Um, So I would say there's a couple. There's a lot I could talk about on this, obviously. Um, So there's the Foreign Legion aspect. um, There's all the Ukrainians that we all the various Ukrainian units that we worked with. We worked with everybody from territorial defense units to, you know, uh, conscripted brigades. So, so, like, newly formed brigades uh, and brigades that have been together and been training and are perf- pretty proficient uh, and experienced. And they've all been working together for years, like, f- since 2015. You know, we've also worked with units like Omega, which is, uh, like, essentially, for lack of a better descriptor, like, a uh, special forces for the National Guard. And then we've also worked with some of the, you know, the soft guys that Green Berets have been training in Ukraine for the last eight years, so you have a lot of variance between those units. Um, so it's not—it's not really an easy—not an easy question to answer. But
0: but the Foreign Legion is kind of self-contained, right? It does its own things.
1: Um, I, I, that's not correct. I mean, no. um, it may have been that case pretty early on in the war, but I think it's evolved more towards uh, supplementing. Um, where the greatest need is. So there will be some Foreign Legion units that get attached to uh, like a regular infantry brigade, Ukrainian infantry brigade. Um, and then in other instances, you know, if there's a battalion that is under strength, you know, you, uh, the Foreign Legion teams will go and supplement them and, you know, conduct some special reconnaissance, uh, you know, sniper type sniper missions, uh, things of that nature. So to kind of boost the defenses of uh, what's going on. Here.
0: And, and who's part of the foreign legion? Is it kind of foreign military guys or people without even training coming in? And are they coming in from all over the world or just Europe and the United States? Yeah. What can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I can speak from my experience of when I came into country in March. So I was on the train. Uh, from Poland to Lviv, and I was sitting with three other guys who were coming in. Um, one of the guys had, was in the Canadian military, I think. One of the and he had fought with the YPG as well. Uh, there's a lot. By the way, there's a lot of dudes who fought in Syria who are YPG are the Kurds in Syria. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Westerners who have made that transition to fighting in Ukraine. Um, And then one guy was with the formerly French military, I think, but didn't have much experience. Uh, And then the third guy was from Germany, and he was a carpenter. No experience at all? No. I mean, yeah, I think he'd fire guns a couple times. Uh, So at the beginning of the war, there was a lot of that. And how did you deal with that? I mean, how did you train up a carpenter? Yeah. Uh, I'm the wrong person to answer on that. So I founded my team with another former Green Beret, uh, and we made a pretty big deal of uh, ensuring that guys had, at, at, the very, at the very minimum, military experience. And what we were looking for was combat experience. Um, so we would do all our own recruiting through word of mouth um, and just talking to people, essentially. Uh, the, the people that are already in Ukraine, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, We would recruit from inside Ukraine. So we would put a lot of emphasis on vetting for, for my team personally. Uh, I can't speak to, you know, what other teams would do. Uh, I know they probably had lower standards.
0: And what was your team focused on, recon, infantry, assaults, like, what was the mission?
1: Yeah, uh, it was pretty much whatever we wanted it to be. Um, we were pretty so much- a little bit
0: different from the US military. <laughs> yeah.
1: So if uh, one of the reasons why I got out of the US military was because I thought it was too risk averse you know uh you know just to go to the range you got to put in this risk assessment you got to do all this paperwork blah 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 see like i wish i could have found some happy medium between the two but i instead i found one extreme with the us military and the like polar opposite extreme so sort of the wild west the wild west yeah exactly and keep i mean keep in mind that a lot of the stuff i'm talking about you know changes over has changed over time so what the foreign legion was in march is not what the foreign legion is today, you know, and standards have changed, so they're doing security background checks now, whereas, like, in the beginning, it was, like, kind of the Wild West. So they have made significant progress in, you know, raising the level of experience and professionalism uh, needed to come in and help.
0: What was your first engagement like with the Russian military, and what did you learn from that?
1: (sighs) Yeah, first engagement, well, so for a very long time before the, Kharkiv counter-offensive, the lines were very, very static in Kharkiv. So um, we would do a lot of reconnaissance in the gray zone, some mining operations, things that would give us a little bit of standoff because, you know, if you're running around in the gray zone with four, six, or eight guys and you take a casualty, uh, nobody's coming to get you, you know. So you had to be... We started team off very, very conservatively because we had, you know, we had to learn what the environment is like. Um, so our first engagement, uh, if you would count like call for fire operations, would you count that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, identifying targets with So a drone. you would encounter uh, uh, Russian force and you would ask for artillery support. Yeah, but we'd use it with a drone to identify them. You know, the idea is that, uh, this is maybe sound crass, but you know, kill them in the most efficient and safest way possible. That was my goal as a team leader. And, you know, I think we did a pretty good job of that, to be honest. Uh, We only had one team member who was wounded in action, um, and that was in a pretty heavy engagement. Uh, So we've been in some... For the most part, our team liked to work sort of independently because we could control... We could control... The situation we put ourselves in so when you start incorporating adjacent units you start working with other foreign teams you start to you start to lose that um, ability to um, control how the situation goes if that makes sense because it, especially in the beginning like it is wild west so what did you learn about how the Russian military fights yeah, so, um, and I can only speak to the areas that I've worked in. It's I'm sure it's completely different down in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, you know, in those areas, we primarily were working in heavily wooded areas around Kharkiv. So, um, in my experience so far, they don't like to use the woods. Um, they're not, because, because working in the woods in small unit tactics or a platoon level, it requires like significant amount of training, uh, and experience. You know, you have to know how to pack your rucksack, right? If you're going to go out in the woods for multiple days on patrol and moving to different areas, you're packing water, you're packing food, right? Survival training. Yeah. Essentially. Right. And you can get shot at and blown up by artillery at any time. So what I noticed is that they were not very proficient in the woods with small unit tactics. Um, And what they really would like to do is they pretty much wouldn't try to occupy any heavily wooded areas. Um, They would try to occupy the villages and more urban areas, built-up areas around the woods, and then use a lot of mines. They love using mines, everything from the OZMs, which is the Bouncing Betty mine, which are really, really nasty, from PFMs. To uh, I think like palm threes, which basically they you can on in all these I, except for the OZM that I've mentioned. You can uh, disperse using artillery canisters, which is really nasty. So they don't have to hand and place it, um, but they really like using these mines, uh, and it's because I don't think they have the experience to work in the woods. So what they do is they deny uh, mobility out of the woodblock. So they'll hold the big the big uh, villages use. Uh, art- artillery to suppress, and then, like, mine avenues of approaches to, to those areas.
0: Do you know which Russian units you were facing there?
1: At the beginning, we faced a lot of LPR, DPR guys. Um, you know, you've probably read about the barrier troops thing that the Russians uh, have allegedly be, been using. Um, we kind of noticed that uh, when the lines are very static around Kharkiv, they're kind of using the LPR, DPR guys for the same thing.
0: Do you think you encountered any Spetsnaz,
1: Special Operations Forces? No, we never encountered them, but uh, in the areas we worked, occasionally they would come in. Um, There was one area we were working in. uh, They came in at night one time and uh, knocked on one of the uh, command posts, Ukrainian command posts. And they pretended to be the Ukrainian company commander. Were they dressed
0: in Ukrainian uniforms?
1: I don't know. This was at night. Mm. Um, but the they, they messed up. So they claimed to be the former company commander. So their information wasn't up to date. And so the Ukrainians knew, like, this is, you know, what's going on here, right? So uh, it was not not successful. I think they were trying to capture some Ukrainians to get uh, in, intel on, you know, Ukrainian movements, Ukrainian positions.
0: Did you see them do a lot of nighttime operations? Mm-mm.
1: Mm-mm. Um especially as the war went on, as, as, like, the year went on. I I didn't see them do it uh, very much any, yeah. They do have, you know, like, some handheld thermals, like commercial off-the-shelf thermals, but nothing significant. Uh, At least those guys. Yeah, at least those guys, yeah, correct.
0: And did you notice any decrease in quality of fighting over
1: time Mm -hmm. as you've been there for 10 months? So, I would say... Fighting in terms of the experience level of the individual soldier, no. But I will say that Heimars made a huge difference, like a noticeable difference for us. So, you know, our typical mission would be to go into the gray zone. So the gray zone is in front of the Ukrainian line or between the Russian and Ukrainian line. So our typical mission would be to go in the gray zone and either do a sniper operation uh or laser mines or call for fire mission for the mo- for the majority of our missions that's typically what it encompassed um, and uh the HIMARS so we're on the gray zone a lot getting our leader a lot before HIMARS yeah you know, a lot of mortars not a whole lot of like big artillery but a ton of 82 a ton of 122 which is the soviet version um, and after HIMARS before Heimar's to after Heimar's, huge difference. I would probably say fifty percent decrease in the amount of rounds that we are taking. Because they just had to move the ammo logistics for Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean part and part of it might be that, you know, the focus of the Russians had shifted to the Donbass or Kyrgyz, right? So I, I you know, but Heimar's def, I but I'm talking about a month, like a thirty day window. There was a noticeable difference.
0: How accurate were the Russian fire missions? I mean, they use a lot of drones too, right? To guide their artillery.
1: Yeah, so... I have two sort of answers to that. Um, This may be... This is my opinion, and this may be completely inaccurate, and it may be due to the fact that we had um, terrain that gave us freedom of movement with the wood blocks and the trees, concealment from overhead cover, but... um, in my opinion, some people are going to disagree with this. You either have to be, you either have to have done something very very stupid, or be very unlucky to get taken out by artillery. Um, that being said, my team was not a, the type of team that went to the front and sat in a trench or sat in a CP. Um, command post. We, yeah, command post. Um, we would have we would idea idea target or come up with a mission. And then we would do a full mission planning cycle back in the rear where, you know, it's relatively safe. You know, come up with a medevac plan, comms plan, contingency plan, all this stuff. And then we'd go out and execute, come back. So, you know, I, honestly, I would say that the for the train that we were working in, the gray zone is actually one of the safer places to be as opposed to... You know, there's two, there's sort of two kind of safe places. So we worked in a Zoom a bunch as well after it was liberated and we had a, a, like, a safe house there. And Zoom never gets hit with cruise missiles. and it's out of artillery range. So Zoom is super quiet. It's very, very quiet. But if you go to Carkeep City, they're getting hit with S300s. They're getting hit with calibers at night, you know. So it's, like, kind of an interesting dynamic there. And then, you know, on that thread in the gray zone... You know, if you have concealment from drones, you, you're not going to get identified. They're not just going to be spraying artillery rounds into a big wood block, so it's also kind of a safe place. You know, and I, I I've noticed that the Ukraine, uh, not the Ukrainians, the Russians don't really like. They don't have that like skill to be super sneaky in the woods, and you know. Did you see a lot of use of drones? Yeah. Uh, this is this brings my brings me to Max's point. So there was one instance uh, we were working. We were doing reconnaissance for an upcoming assault. Um, and two things in this story. They were basically, it was a pretty small woodblock. So in order to deny access and freedom to maneuver in that wood block, for like two weeks straight, they were just launching uh, PFM mines from art, art, artillery dispensers every day, like multiple times a day. You could stand in one place and see like 15 of these PFMs all around you. But the Ukrainians still have uh, observation posts everywhere in there. So, like, you are you have a path that's cleared like that, and you're just walking. It's like PFM, 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 PFM. You're showing your very
0: narrow path right now. Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and just PFMs everywhere. And those are the little toe popper, the butterfly mines. You know, uh, They're pretty nasty, but you can actually... You can see them. You can see them, right? Uh, but also, if they're in your way, you can actually pick them up and move them out of the way. So as long as you don't, like... Hit it with a stick like you've seen. So you've probably maybe seen the video of Ukrainians hitting the PFMs with a big stick to like get them out, to, to just destroy them, but... That's not advice. No, not advice. Definitely not advice. I mean, yeah. so... Um, but still, in, they're on timer. So when they're launched from artillery, they have, I think, like a 40 plus, a forty around 40 hour timer uh, detonation, self-destruct fuse on it. Um, so just in 40 hours it goes off no matter what. Right, but they're doing this multiple times a day and like we're infilling in this little wood block along this little cleared path and you can just hear them popping off like multiple every minute. There's that many out there. Um, but, so we did this reconnaissance. There's all these PFMs everywhere. We were x filling and the road out from this little wood block is just open field everywhere. Like, it's for a very long time. So you rip up, somebody rips up on a pickup truck, you jump on the back of the pickup truck and you drive as fast as you can through the open area back to like relatively safe lines. So we're waiting at the pickup point and we must have been spotted by a drone. Uh, we heard the drone above us, was quadcopter, and then we started getting bracketed by 60 millimeter mortars, which is pretty unusual, actually. Surprisingly enough, it, I think both for the Ukrainian and the Russian side, they don't really like using 60, 60 millimeter mortars. Um, I think it's because you have less range on the to But the, that's nice because you can support uh, an infantry squad have, if you have a guy on a 60 like who's attached to the, the squad you can do direct lay and like suppress the enemy and retreat but anyway uh but we we basically got bracketed so we're at the video i have probably the rounds start coming in video is oh, oh sorry vehicle drop vehicle drop off vehicle pickup location uh so we get round comes in it's not that close right but we're like okay this is this is getting a little worrisome. So we like hit the deck. I have probably a drainage ditch that is like three inches deep, and I, I have it's me, another American, and then some of the partner force that we were working with. And they all hit the deck too, and we're all like lying in this little shallow ditch. And then you know, if we're if we're like in the middle, picture a road. One round lands to our six o'clock, and then the next round lands to our uh, twelve o'clock, a little bit closer. And then the next round lands was 6 o'clock, a little bit closer. They, like, textbook bracketed us. And it, they walked it in, and trees, like, trees were blown up, like, right next to us. Dirt was landing on us. Did you think that was it? Or? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, it got so close. I was like, all right, the next. And it was, like, you know, textbook being bracketed walk it, walking in, and the drones above us. Um, And I'm like, all right, the next one. Like, if they keep this pattern up, the next one is going to land on us. And we're, you know, like, we're going to be pretty messed up, um, 60 millimeter can be pretty nasty if they get close, um, and it just never came. And the drone flew off, and- You got lucky. You got super lucky. So this is wh- why I love HIMARS, because this instance was sort of like in that time frame where so you HIMARS- you think they just run out of- shots Yeah, so what I think happened, motors- yeah. So what I think happened was, it was a drone team co-located with the 60 team, like maybe a mobile, mobile 62 millimeter team, whatever. And, you know, they had their rounds in their rucksack or whatever. And, you know, they just ran out of ammo. Good for you. I know. Thank God for Heimars. That's why I say Heimar saved my life. Like, for real. I Literally. Think. Yeah. What was the
0: fight like after liberation of Kharkiv in Donetsk and
1: Luhansk? Mm-hmm. So, we worked on, so when I say, like, we worked in Luhansk and Donetsk, like, people would probably be like, oh, my God, Donetsk and Luhansk, but. Realistically, if you look at a map, you have Izum sort of in the east, and then you have a big river, and Borova, and Liman, uh, Kupiansk, and Kramatorsk, uh, and then like Severodonetsk over there, and Kramina. And there's this axis of a little woodblock there. Um,
0: it's really kind of the border region between the two. Yeah,
1: of so when I say we worked in Luhansk and Donetsk, like really, like we were working, we were still in Kharkiv in a Zoom, but we would push out and work on the border between Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, but, but that's where sort of you started getting into major resistance
0: from the Russians because they kind of folded mm-hmm. in that initial Kharkiv offensive, mm-hmm. but then yeah.
1: they started fighting. Yeah, so we had, um, we linked up with a brigade reconnaissance unit and, um, and yeah, we faced some pretty stiff resistance there. Once Zoom was retaken and the lines kind of firmed up a little bit, uh, we were there. Was some terrain like rivers and things like that that really prevented any more forward movement. I mean, as you can imagine, trying to do trying to cross a river obstacle is a very complicated and technical task for any military to do. And now throw in 152s, throw in M- any, enemy 152 uh, artillery, MLRS. Uh, Constable launch rocket systems. Yeah. Uh, cluster bombs, helicopters, K-52s. Uh, you get really freaking nasty really quick. And, you know, going across the river on a boat is with all your kid on, you know, that's, it's pretty hard to get back once you're on the other side. Um, so the Russians put a p- pretty good uh, resistance there in preventing the Ukrainians from making any more advancements towards... Um, Slider. Spot
0: debate, Slider. yeah. And what did you see in terms of Russian air power? Did you see a lot of it? Mm-hmm. Was it fixed wing rotor? Mm-hmm.
1: So our experience is that really the only time rotor wing or fixed wing comes out to play uh, is when they're the lines are flexing, or like when the line when there's a when there's attack or counterattack kind of deal. And, you know things are kind of like up in the wind. Uh, so in one instance, our team went on a pretty significant uh, assault. And that was when we had our uh, wounded casualty. Um, and they were evacuating him. And the, um, we had an APC, a Rochelle Senator. And it got hit by Grad. Uh, so we had to ditch the vehicle, move out on foot the rest of the way. Um, but prior to, uh, ditching the vehicle, I'm not sure what kind of fixed wing it was. Uh, it came in, we had to cross a bridge, pontoon bridge to get over there. And was it low flying? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're basically coming up on the bridge, this swoops in and tries to blow up the bridge before we can cross it to trap us on the other side. Um, so that like, that's one instance. Did it succeed? No, It missed. <laughs> not a lot of accuracy there. Yeah. Um and then And was it was it a single aircraft or were they flying in pairs? No, it was a single aircraft. Yeah. That's not to say there wasn't another aircraft up there though. And then the K fifty twos we had done some stinger missions, you know, like basically when the lines were still pretty um Those are rushing helicopters. Yeah. Um when the lines were pretty static still. We would go out into do ops essentially in the gray zone with Stingers, spend a couple nights out there, you know, hoping that they, it would come a little bit, like come pretty close. Um, and very, very, very rarely, uh, we never saw it. So, so they were very cautious. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they're protect- they're protecting those assets for sure. Um, what they'll do is they'll come in and loft the rockets in, from a safe space, and you just don't have that range of the Stinger to reach out and hit them. But you can hear them in the distance, like, you know, the Russian line is, you know, here, you know, and you hear them like just flying up and down the line. Yeah, It's really frustrating, actually. (laughs) What was your impression of Russian morale? Was it varied? Yeah, I I mean, I can't, uh, I never interviewed any uh, Russians, but uh, from what we've seen on our, our drone reconnaissance and what we've seen from overrun Russian positions is that they're extremely undisciplined. Um, and then maybe feed into this, you know, that may send the wrong message to people out there because, you know, I think Russia takes their most undisciplined troops and puts them at the front. Um, so, um, you know, guys will be, their trenches will be an absolute mess. Um, people won't have their kit on, people won't have their guns in their hand, Dudes will be out. It's like with the shirt, like laying out in the open with the shirt up and his like huge white belly out. Just probably drunk, like passed out on, you know, a path next to the trench. Um, Do they even clean their weapons? So, I right, so we captured two. Uh, we captured two AK12s, uh, a BMP one, a bunch of like training manuals and things like that. Um, and the AK-12s were an absolute disaster. Like, there's no way you were going to fire around to that thing if you wanted to. Like, absolutely not. So
0: even though AKs are notorious for being very reliable, you still need to care for it a little bit, right? And
1: Well, actually, I've heard uh, the opposite about the AK-12. So okay, the AK-12, you... uh, I read something that it had actually been... Like, people were saying that they should have them recalled. They were, like, so bad in the field. Um, so, I, regardless, they never cleaned this thing. Absolutely. It was absolutely disgusting. You were not so, going to be able to Even though you were in
0: the rain and the dirt?
1: It so. was in a building. We captured them in a building. Yeah. So, like, uh, you know, they had opportunities to... They could have cleaned their weapons. So, I, I think they just... Those dudes were either schwacked or they were killed or they just cut mm-hmm. and ran.
0: And just for our listeners who may not have a military background, I mean... This is something that's drilled into you in the US military, right? Always clean your weapon.
1: And the AK 12 is, it's even more, is like you're not going to get, the AK 12s don't go to like a conscript, right? So an AK 12 is going to go to um, maybe some sort of special unit um, or some commanders. Uh, but we think the CP was used as a training ground for conscripts or whoever. Uh, and, you know, if those guys are instructors, and their guns are that dirty, like unfireable dirty. Like, what does that say about the training they're giving? What does that say about the state of morale, etc.? Did you actually try to fire that gun and see if you? Could? There's no way; it'd probably blow up on us. <laughs> I, like, I don't think the rounds would chamber. Wow.
0: Yeah. So, so much dirt. Yeah. Yeah. What about the Ukrainian side? What, what What did you think was the most challenging things that the Ukrainians had to face?
1: I think they could do a much better job of. Uh, disseminating information to lower levels. Um, and this goes back to the sort of, there's a lot, there's some conflict between, you know, the up and coming generation of new leaders in, in, in the military and that sort of old Soviet style of leadership. So when I talked about the variance in units, you know, degrees of experience and professionalism, you know, you have... Uh, these newly formed brigades who are oftentimes, uh, you know, staffed by old Soviet officers, essentially. And then you have units uh, with some of the better infantry brigades who have, like, you know, the company commanders are very young and, you know, they understand that, like, okay, we have to, like, back brief our guys. We have to disseminate information to our guys. We need to do training in our downtime. You have to... We have to tell them, like, who's to our left and who's to our right. So, like, if you have to attack or if you have to retreat, you know, guys aren't, like, wondering, okay, are the guys still to my left? Or are they still to my right? You know, if you don't if you don't tell them that, they're going to wait. They're just going to run, right? I mean... Did you run into friendly fire issues? We did not run into friendly fire issues. So, um, you know, there were issues of lack of deconfliction sometimes. Um but for the most part, and maybe this goes to what I'm saying about our team, my team, um, controlling the situation. So we were very good about not putting in ourselves in a situation that that would occur. So a very dangerous aspect of our job was, you know, you leave Ukrainian lines, you go into the gray zone. you got to go back to Ukrainian lines, right? So you have to pass back through these guys who are out there sitting in trenches, getting shelled all the time, like, and they're out there for days. Some of the TDF guys we talked to have been out there for like, three months, sitting in a trench. You know, and you know it's not like a it's not like Bachmut, right? But they're still getting shelled pretty regularly. Some of the trenches are pretty nice that Ukrainians have, though, like really nice. Um, so that's like, that's one of those things that like before you leave the Ukrainian lines, you're like here's a ra- here's a radio. That like was one of ours. we'll radio. We'll do near far recognition essentially, right? Um, so there's a lot of that that really makes a really big difference in reducing that uh, that threat. Because I mean, it's a it's a big reality out there. I mean, in any war. Um, in my um, I did also did a deployment with Second Infantry Division, um, and we had friendly fire incidents in in the regular I army. Mean, yeah, you of know? it happens. War is chaos. What, Hopefully it's a little controlled.
0: <laughs> what, um, from your perspective, from what you've seen, what do the Ukrainians need the most, both lethal and not lethal? Yeah,
1: so th- I guess this brings me to one of my, maybe my g- complaints about what I hear from academics and, um, you know, other decision makers. I feel like there's a lot of talk about, you know, oh, Ukrainians need to learn to do combined arms, right? Um I'm not, everybody's looking for this silver bullet that is going to solve the problem, right? It's going to be the silver bullet so the Ukrainians can roll over the Russians, kick them out, and it's just not, you know, if we wanted the Ukrainians to be good at combined arms, we should have started in 2014. We should have, like... It's a really
0: hard mission to train for. It's 100%.
1: It's super hard. I mean, the reason why the U.S. is good at it is because we have a century of making mistakes and learning from our mistakes, Right. So, but also we have all the elements. We have yeah. air power, right? AWACS, yeah, uh, reconnaissance, etc., satellites. Yeah. So it's difficult. I mean, but I do think that the Ukrainians have improved significantly. Uh, for example, in u- using infantry and in supporting a, supporting armor, right? So at the beginning of the war, you know, very decentralized. Basically, here's a javelin, go find the Russians around Kiev. You know, I had, I had. Uh, teammates who were there for the defense of Kiev and they were handed like javelins and AT systems and on their own, they like, got a boat and drove it up into the Chernobyl exclusion zone to hit some Russian columns in the rear. So like very decentralized and you know, and but it worked. Just not a planned mission, just going out there. Pretty and, much. And, yeah, yeah. YOLO, <laughs> but it worked right. I mean, I just, the, the situation has changed now and uh, I just need like, You have to keep in mind, I guess, you know, from the start of the war to now, I think Ukraine is on a very steep trajectory, an upward trajectory. Um, And, you know, people don't really understand that because you don't see in the news the finer details of what's going on at the front and how the Ukrainians are improving and learning from their mistakes. Uh, And well I think think the Russians have a pretty flat trajectory, I mean, maybe you can answer this question better, but, you know, what else can Russia bring to bear Uh, besides more troops, more artillery, more tanks, right? I mean, clearly they're
0: playing a quantity game.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is where I think the Western, to answer your question, uh, Western weapons are huge, are so important, because we place so much emphasis on quality and precision over, you know, number of tubes, essentially, right? And so look look at what HIMARS have done. You know, if I could if I could wave a wand and give the Ukrainians any weapon systems, I would be talking about, number one, ATACness for sure, 100%. And maybe I'm biased because HIMARS saved my life, but ATACNAS, all day, please send it. You, you want range. Yeah. I mean, we've pushed, uh, Ukraine has pushed back, you know, the logistical hubs out of the range of HIMARS, right? So, you know, granted, we've, the uh, the new weapon system that is being donated, the I can't remember. I can never remember the acronym. The G, it's like a rocket boosted thing. GLSDB. Yeah, you know. yeah, right. That'll be a great addition. But you know, that's like what double the range of HIMARS, yeah. maybe more. Well, or less. there's
0: also questions of how many exist. It's a very new weapon. It's based on some existing weapons, but we don't have stocks of them, so yeah. we're gonna have to manufacture them.
1: Yeah. So, ATACMS all day. Yeah, if they need more. I would be. It would be great if they get. Um, long-range drones, like, um, um, they can use, really use some of the uh, Mikliks, the uh, mine clearing line charges vehicles, those things would be amazing, because when Ukraine does this push, you know, since they love, since the Russians love to use mines, like, you need to create, you need to penetrate that line, essentially, right? So that's huge. Um, What about
0: non-lethal aid and? I'm also curious, related to that, is Starlink. I've heard a
1: lot about dependency on Starlink. Can I jump back to this, the previous question sure. real quick? Sure. So when I'm talking about variants in unit units, you have a lot of these newly formed brigades, right? So these guys haven't received a lot of training. You know, these dudes were working in offices beforehand, right? They, and then they, they volunteered. They answered the call and these brigades are mostly some of these brigades are pretty much all newly cons- newly newly drafted guys or newly conscripted guys so donating weapons like attack mass and giving more tubes like it's really very 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 important to be able to soften up the russian lines enough the front line enough like the first barrier of russian troops soften them up and then you use these longer range precision guided weapons to move the logistical hubs even farther back so that when these newly Formed units which there are going to be more Because this is you know a very Dangerous and, and, and You know a lot of casualties You need to soften those lines up so these newly formed Units have a fighting chance to Like punch through and cause some damage And that's really how I think you're going to make Some significant you're going to move the needle that way Another thing is I think This is just again I'm biased I'm a green beret Why aren't there green berets In Ukraine I mean I've been all over Ukraine If you go to Lviv even Kiev, like, there's a lot of space in Ukraine that is open, that is totally permissive. Like, they can well, very we, easily... We are, we are training Ukrainian troops. So we're just training them outside of Ukraine. Right, but there's so much... I mean, how much paperwork and overhead and all, like, political maneuvering that needs to happen in order to, like, for those things to happen? I mean, I'm talking about, like, a, you know, set up a training camp and do, like, a pre-deployment training like, yeah. like like we would do. But the Russians
0: had training camps that we had used near Lviv, right? So that would be prime target for them to hit with missiles.
1: I think there are ways to reduce that threat. I mean, you know, I'm not too... I wouldn't be too worried about that. And I'm pretty sure my Green Beret friends would also be okay with... We'll will be willing to take that risk. And that's their job. I mean, that's what they signed up for the Green Berets to do. So uh, I just really do not like the political, you know, aversion to you know, having a more significant impact. And this is gonna be a long war. You can war.
0: understand it. We we've we fought for two decades, we've taken a lot of casualties yes. in the Middle East and there's an aversion, both political aversion, but also among the American public to be involved in other people's wars. That is one of the
1: most catastrophic results from the GWAT, I think, is that we have this GWAP PTSD or whatever you want to call it. Lower war on terrorism. Yeah. uh, To taking any more significant role. I mean, I don't think that, I don't think sending in some Green Berets, a few ODAs to, you know, do train the trainer program in Western Ukraine is going to tip the scales and lead Russia to go nuclear, you know? I, I, just, I just wish we would be a little bit more assertive in our responses and a little bit less, you know, res- uh, reactive. Um, ODA is... Uh, operational Detachment Alpha. Okay. So it's like a 12-man special yeah. forces team. And
0: when, when it comes to non-lethal aid, mm-hmm. what do you think is needed the most? Because I've heard that... Well, let, let's take Starlink um, as one, one... I read the CNN
1: thing. article today
0: about them. Um, so CNN published an article... Where you had the president of Starlink on the record saying that Starlink is geofencing and preventing Ukrainian military from using Starlink for controlling their drones, for doing artillery recon, intentionally doing that
1: because they don't want these systems to be used for offensive. military purposes. I think she said offensive specifically because uh, she said they were it was okay to, for communications, but they didn't want them being used for offensive operations. Right? and. Like, my favorite little quip in that thing was they even admitted that the Ukrainians were using them in very creative ways, the, the Starlink terminals, and they are. Trust me. It's really, the Ukrainians are so crafty. I love it. And that's one of the things that gets me, like, really excited about... Can you, can you share any, or is that too I, I really can't okay. share that. I mean, that's... Um, yeah, too sensitive. Yeah, that's too fine. sensitive.
0: But, but did you use Starlink?
1: Oh, yeah. We had, two, we had two terminals. And how important was that for you? Um, for for us and all of Ukraine, it's pivotal. Like, it's absolutely essential. So, at the beginning of the war, there were, Starlink's were how people communicated. So, um, that's not to say there weren't gaps. So, for example, you know, at at the front line, there would be a Ukrainian CP. They'd have Starlink, obviously. You know, and that's how they communicated to Hire, was using Starlink. The, pro- the gap at the beginning of the war was, you know, you have the CP, where the company commander is, and then you have forward positions or patrols, and, like, really, there was not much way to... There wasn't any good way to communicate, you know, with those units who are out on patrol.
0: Is that because there was a lot of EW, electronic warfare, jamming
1: of radio communications? Not a lot of radios? So, yeah, not a lot of radios. N- let me rephrase that. Not a lot of good radios, good enough radios. So... But you can imagine how that would be a problem if you can't communicate with your field with your units that are out on patrol at the front. But you know, to put this in perspective, the radios that we were issued um, were hot garbage. So like, we would One get these Western
0: weapons, uh, yeah, radios, they were
1: Motorola's, yeah. Motorola's. yeah. Um, we would get 500 meters out of them, and it's like
0: 500 meters, yeah,
1: wow, yeah, yeah. Um, Not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, you might as well not even carry it at that point, to be honest. And we stopped carrying it. I mean, partially... Were these civilian radios? Um, I don't know if they were civilian... They had encryption on them, for sure. But there was no, like, rotating the encryption or anything like that. But so we just... A, we stopped carrying them because they weren't effective. And B, uh, for a very long time, until we got better radios, I just didn't want people carrying them anyway because of the Mm. directional finding potential of, you know, us getting... Big bombs dropped on our heads. So another thing is I never let my guys carry phones. So there's this aspect of, you know, we talk about, like, if we're going to talk about, like, lessons for uh, for other people who are, might be going to Ukraine or whatever, um, my, like, number one recommendation was would be just be proficient at the basics. I mean, I'm talking about just react to contact, just normal battle drills, linear ambush, React a sniper like uh, things straight out of essentially the Ranger Handbook. If you if you are proficient at the task in the Ranger Handbook, you will be money. Did you see a lot of Russian snipers? Um, no, actually did not. not. A lot. No. Um, in your area, at least we had heard. Uh, you know, we so often we we would get a report. Oh, there's Russian snipers in this area. For me as a team leader, if I haven't seen it or I can't I don't I can't physically look at the proof and hold it, I wouldn't I wouldn't, just I wouldn't right. believe it.
0: Yeah. What about Ukrainian opsec? I mean, that's been one of the sort of incredible successes, I think, mm-hmm. on the Ukrainian side, mm-hmm. is that they've been able to keep the Russians guessing about what they're gonna do. This Kharkiv offensive was a big success in large part because the Russians were surprised mm-hmm. and didn't have major forces. Like how are they able to keep such a good operational security around use of cell phones, mm-hmm. taking videos. I mean, a lot of the videos we're seeing are coming out from Russian soldiers just recording them on their front lines. Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of that on the Ukrainian side unless it's intentional.
1: Well, I mean, to, I think there were some hard lessons learned at the beginning. I mean, I got to Ukraine at the beginning of March, and that was when the Legion Recruiting Center got hit. And um, I talked to some guys who were there, and they said it was not a good situation dudes were obviously when you bring a bunch of people in with no experience you know carpenters for example they don't know anything about you know giving up location data metadata on photos blah 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 blah. so there there were some pretty hard lessons learned i mean there was the video i think there was a a violinist playing in a basement he was playing the ukrainian national anthem it was posted on social media and then i think the barracks got hit like a couple days later and a bunch of ukrainians died so i think there were some really hard lessons learned and i I mean, blood, sweat, and tears, man. You know, I think that's probably why you know the Ukrainians have been but, but able. But they to. learned
0: those lessons. The Russians didn't seem to learn those lessons.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, judging from what I've seen, that's not surprising. I mean, if you don't clean your gun, probably not going to really care if you're carrying a cell phone, carrying a cell phone, or if you're you're not going to clear metadata on your photos. So let's talk
0: about one thing that you mentioned to me which is an incredibly sad thing, but you had a colleague that was wounded. And talk to us about what happened to him and then the issues that you had encountered trying to get him some help.
1: Yeah, so this is a topic that i like basically number one on my list of things to talk about because I think the experience the experience of him, A, the Ukrainians did a. Really fantastic job of taking care of him.
0: And this was a U.S. vet?
1: Yeah. So this was a former Marine. He fought in Fallujah, the second battle of Fallujah. Hardcore dude. Probably if I had to choose anybody on my team to not get hit, it would have been this guy. Um, So just really unlucky. He caught shrapnel through the eye. Yeah. So a grad came in, uh, shrapnel went right through his eye and, you know, went into his brain essentially. Shrapnel went basically all the way back to his brain, Um, uh, and before I go on, he's he's doing pretty good. Like, uh, you know, he lost the eye. Yeah. Oh yeah, he lost the eye. Yeah, but he's the type of guy that can totally rock an eye patch, so it totally works for him. Um, But he's pretty much like he's pretty much fine. Amazing. You know, like the.
0: But it took a while to get there, and you ran into some bureaucracy, right? Issues.
1: Yeah. So. The, uh, so the Ukrainians were pretty good about evacuating him and getting him to a higher level, higher level of care, but we didn't get much visibility on him until he basically made it to the hospital in Kiev, which is like, um, you know, one of the lessons that we should, one of the AAR points on that was we really should have sent somebody with him in the ambulance, but you have, if you have MLRS coming in, grad coming in, you're kind of like, it's pretty chaotic, um. But, so we didn't really have visibility on him until he made it to the Keeve Hospital. The, um, the doctors were great. The neurosurgeons were great, you know. They could have made, like, a very big error and be like, we want to remove the shrapnel and, like, you know, cut open his skull. But they didn't. They were like, no, we're going to leave it there because it it'll we'll cause more damage. Like, very proficient, very happy with the level of care he received in Kiev. But, this is where I get really angry, um, The U.S. government right now is not basically lifting a finger to evacuate American citizens who have been wounded. So that's guys doing humanitarian aid. They're not lifting a finger to evacuate veterans who are fighting. Um, The VA is not treating any combat-related injuries sustained in Ukraine. And their position is that this was not an American war, so you're not eligible, right? Um. I mean, that's their position, but I think it's what I've in digging into this. My understanding is that they don't want to appear to be supporting people who are fighting in the war. Um, and that part of it, I believe, is that they, they don't want to encourage more Americans to go over and fight. Um, and an, uh, another thing to this story is, so he was in the Kiev military hospital for probably three or four weeks. And I'm working like okay. How do I get him to higher level care to Poland or the United States? And there's a, a few things that I want to talk about here. The first off is um, I had read that uh, Langsdor, the military hospital in Germany, that basically everybody from the G was you know evacuated to. They're like from the war on terrorism. Yeah, from the war on terrorism. Um, their TBI clinics are absolutely fantastic because they have a ton of experience. So I was like, ah, oh, like. Brain trauma. Uh, yeah, brain trauma. Um, so I read that launchstool was taking Ukrainian soldiers to treat them. Not a, not a lot, but, you know, some. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, he's a veteran, right? He has brain trauma. He has shrapnel in his brain. Like, all right, let's see if we can get him to Wanshtul. Nope, he's American. We can't treat him at Wanshtul Hospital because he's American. But we can take Ukrainians. Like that to me is absolutely unbelievable. Um, and then, so basically, I have to make the decision. Well, I don't, not me personally, but I'm thinking through all the contingencies here. Like, all right, I have some friends in the Polish government, and they've offered, they'll, they'll take care of all his treatment for free, all his rehab, everything. They'll completely take care of him because that's what the Poles do. They take care of their people. And they know, they're, they're invested in this fight, right? So they're gonna take care of him. Like, all right, we can give him to Poland, and like, you know, that'd be good. I was like, but, all right, well, can we get him home? If the VA is not treating him, like, do I really want to send him home? And then then he has to come out of pocket for all this stuff, and he'll be like a million dollars in debt the rest of his life for all this care, right? So I, was like, I don't want to send this guy home, and then you know, he's declared bankruptcy after he just went willingly volunteered to go fight for democracy in Ukraine. Like that, that kind of makes me angry. So um, I got in touch with some friends who from the Romulus T. Weatherman Foundation. They're a private found, uh, a foundation that is doing a lot of good work in Ukraine. Uh, they're you know, delivering incubators for pre- premature babies. They delivered like two thousand tons of medicine and food and blankets and clothes and all this stuff. So they're they're awesome people, um, and they were like, "Yeah, we'll get them out," and essentially. They arranged for an ambulance. They arranged for transport from Kiev to Poland and then transport from Poland back to the United States, which really pisses me off because not only, there's, this is twofold here, so not only, you know, Grizz is not the only American that's wounded. I talked to plenty of wounded Americans over there and I'm like, all right, dude, what's your plan? They're like, I don't know. I'm just going to stay in the hospital in, in Kiev. I don't really have any other choice, right? Um... But they were amazing. They got him hooked up with a, like a specialist, a neurosurgeon specialist in, in the North Pacific, Northwest, and he doesn't have to pay anything. But how many Americans are coming back wounded and you know they don't have somebody like me or somebody looking out for them or don't have the connections with you know private donors to take care of them? You know, it's absolutely atrocious. It's, particularly since it's vets. Yeah. This guy fought in the Second Battle of Fallujah, right? That is a, That was a nasty battle. So, like, they just abandon our veterans and a, a citizens who are over there, you know, feeding people, clothing people, doing great work. It's disgusting, right?
0: So, you spent 10 months in Ukraine, put your life on the line, had a body that was wounded.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Any regrets? Mm-hmm. And what do you want Americans to know about this conflict? Yeah,
1: so... Regrets... Um, I think everybody has regrets. I mean, it was very, very bittersweet for me to have to, I didn't have to leave Ukraine, but, um, to hand the team off to new leadership essentially. So I, you wanted to stay? No, I, I I'll, so it's difficult. So I have a girlfriend, you know what I mean? Like my you girl, have a life, yeah. I have a life, you know, and um, but you didn't leave because you
0: were frustrated or you, you got disillusioned with the mission or anything like that? No, 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 no.
1: I left because, you know, I, as everybody, all, most foreigners, so on the team, it's volunteer units. So people were constantly rotating You know, People have kids, people have mortgages, people have bills. Like people, one guy was a Uf, uh, UFC fighter and he had a fight, so he had to go home. Um, so, you know, there's this, there is a churn. Um, it was just time for me to exit and. My car registration was expired. My driver's license was expired. I basically, this kicked off, and I just dropped everything and left. And luckily, I had some friends at SAIS, and they kind of were like, they hooked it up with the administration. But, like, um, yeah. A plug for SAIS. Yeah, plug for
0: F- <laughs> to let you do that. But why should Americans care about this war? Yeah. Why did you care about this war? What drove you to support Ukraine this way and put your life on the line for them?
1: Yeah, if I could sort of reframe the question a little bit and and hit a few points that I think are really important. The things that I want Americans to understand here is that the Ukrainians share the same values as us. So I, I interacted with a ton of Ukrainian civilians, a ton of Ukrainian soldiers, because our team was pretty autonomous, um so we had to do all our own you know fact finding and, and and coordination with adjacent units and things like that so um in ukraine i was so often just uh, welcomed into people's homes and they cooked for us Babushkas would literally sit us down and just shove food in our mouths babushkas are grandmas yeah 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 um and shove, foods, shove food in our mouth until there was no food left, you know. And, you know, the hospitality in Ukraine is absolutely amazing. And the babushkas would always say, you know, you're too skinny to be fighting the Russians, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, you know, I, I've just been enamored with the, like, unification of civil society behind the military in Ukraine. So, for example, in Kharkiv City uh, in June... Uh, basically, you know, one to four caliber cruise missiles would come in. Our, our, I'm not sure if it's just precisely caliber cruise missiles. Big big bombs would come in in the middle of the night, one to four of them, and blow big buildings up uh, every night in June. It was a really bad, really bad month for that. But every morning at the break of dawn, as soon as it was possible, like everybody from kids to adults... Senior citizens come out and they'd be filling in holes. They would be sweeping the sidewalk. They would be cleaning up the rubble. And there's something really inspiring about that. Um, You know, there'd be artillery blowing up, uh, you know, gunfire in the distance. And like at the front, there'd still be people, Ukrainians living there, and they'd be out tending to their garden. They would be taking care of their property. Um, And these are things that I think are just. really inspiring in terms of, like, it's how they resist. So I think everybody, and I'm making very sweeping generalizations here, of course, you know, because not 100% of the population is, you know, whatever. Um, But from what I witnessed, everybody is doing something to contribute to the war effort. And, you know, there's something, like, they're defending... Whether you're carrying a gun or not, or wearing a uniform or not, they're all doing something to support the government in Kiev to support the war effort, and I think that's because they share the same values as us. They want they want to keep their government they want to keep their democratic you know government in place. They share the same democratic values as us. Um, and the biggest thing, you know. And
0: by the way, we should say that Kharkiv is one of those regions where a lot of people speak Russian. Yeah, they don't speak Ukrainian. So oftentimes you hear from pundits, they're saying, well, these are Russian-speaking people. They're not really pro-Ukraine.
1: They're pro-Russia anyway. Yeah. You did not encounter a lot of that. I encountered zero Prussian, uh, pro-Russian sentiment. And I've heard this from uh, multiple people in other oblasts like Mikhailov, Dessa, Kharkiv. So these areas, um, my understanding is a lot of, there's a lot of pro-Russian sentiment in some of these oblasts before February 24th. And I think
0: what happens is that when you're Kindergarten gets blown up. Your school gets blown up. You know, suddenly you're not so pro-Russian anymore, right?
1: Yeah, one of my teammates is a Ukrainian-American, and he had been working in Ukraine in Mikulayev, uh for years leading up to the war. And every, he would go to this bar, and he would always talk to this bartender. And this bartender is like, I don't really care if the Russians are in charge or, you know, if the Ukrainians are in charge. I just want to live my life, man. And February 24th kicked off, and he sent... My team made a message and was like, "Dude, I've totally, I like totally changed my perspective. I'm going, I'm going to work for Nova Postia, which is the postal service in Ukraine." Um, and this dude was in Kyrgyzstan two days after it was liberated, delivering packages. He said that um, after he saw a Russian tank just, you know, driving down the street and then just turn and shoot in an apartment building, with a bunch of civilians just standing on the balcony. He was like, "I can't." I can't put up with this, right? I have to do something. Um, and so that's, I, you know, this pro-Russian sentiment, like, I think it's just, I just don't think it's there anymore. I mean, this is Ukrainians' origin story, modern origin story. You know, before February 24th, I think there was, you know, a lot of division within the civil society, and I think that's changed.
0: Well, this happens a lot. I mean, during the American Civil War, you had a lot of people that were pro, I'm sorry, not Civil War, but the Revolutionary War. A lot of people that were pro Britain. Yeah. And then the Brits committed a lot of atrocities and yeah. lost a lot of popular support, right? But, I, um, there, I,
1: there is one more thing I want to talk about because sure. I think it's really important. Um, um, I want to touch on the fact that I think the Ukrainians have used the donated weapon systems, like HiMars, in a very responsible manner. Um, you know, they, as far as I know, they still have all 16 HiMars systems, right? Their Air Force is still. Still flying, their, their helicopters are still flying, their uh, the jets are still flying, and so sometimes you hear arguments that like oh you know like they're a bunch of oh, whatever they're just like the Soviets they'll be respons- irresponsible with these things they won't be able to take care of them etc cetera, etc, cetera. but I think that's not the case at all. I mean I think the Ukrainians have proven time and time again that they are able to adapt and learn at a very rapid pace and use these systems effectively. Like if you and I think that's out of necessity, like, born out of necessity. Like, they can't afford to lose tanks. They can't afford to lose HIMARS. They can't afford yeah. to well, lose Well, that's artillery. the
0: thing. The Russians have thousands of them, so they lose one and they don't care, right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the argument that, like, oh, we can't give them F-16s because they, you know, they won't know how to do X or they won't know how to fly them. We can't give them ATACNUS because they'll hit Belgorod with it. I, I think that is, sorry, excuse my language, bullshit. because... They understand that if they do, you, like, we give them a miss and they send it in, hit blow up stuff in Belgorod, like, no more support from the West, right? I think they're, they're very smart. They understand, like, the situation that they're in. The fact that we won't give them a, a attack miss because we're worried about them striking targets in mainland Russia, if we say to them, don't do this, I'm pretty sure they won't. All right, last question, David. <laughs> can Ukraine win this war? Um, yeah, I firmly believe that Ukraine can win this war. And I think I said this before when we had dinner before, is that, you know, I think Ukraine will still win this war, even if Western support dries up. It's just that the war will be absolutely disastrous for the Ukrainian economy, for you know, the Ukrainian people, for the Ukrainian identity. Um, it'll turn into an insurgency. I have no doubt that if Western support dries up and the Ukrainians aren't able to maintain a conventional posture... You're gonna have, you're gonna, you're gonna have the will to fight will be there. Yeah, and the will to fight of Ukrainians is the polar opposite of what my experience in Afghanistan and Iraq was. I mean, the the stuff that the Ukrainian soldiers put up with at the front in the trenches, like you have to have a will will to fight to put up with that. I mean, there's just no other explanation. I mean, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get shot for deserting. Like you're not. The Ukrainians behind you at the CP, if you come walking back and like, I'm done, they're not going to put a bullet in your head. So David, glad you came
0: back safe. Thank you for coming on and sharing the story with us. It's one day, so have him win the Green beret. Have him
1: win.